what is the basis for your outrage at racism and sexism? What is the basis for that? Because if you don't have a basis for it, then it's basically just fashion. It's opinion at the moment. What is the objective basis to say that it is wrong for one subset of the human being, a human species, to treat another subset wrong or for their, for their own gain? What is the rational basis for this? Welcome to the Stream Roots Podcast, where you'll learn how God's unchanging truth can be applied in our ever-changing world. Through conversations with pastors and ministry leaders, you'll be encouraged, equipped, and challenged in walk with Christ. Stream Roots is designed for pastors and leaders in the church, but is helpful for all people. And now your host, Pastor Mark Pospisil. So glad to have you join us on this episode of Dealing with the Toughest Challenges to the Christian faith. With me is my friend and producer of Stream Roots, the John Blosser. John, welcome. Hey, Mark. How's it going, buddy? It's going great. How about with you? Good. I kind of want to call you Pop, Papa, Pop, <laughs> Pop, Pops, <laughs> Pops from our last episode. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. My- I, I call my father-in-law Pops, so I don't, I don't think it's going to stick. Sorry, man. Probably not. All right, so. fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a, my old friend Dave. Yeah. Yes, yes, in college. That was, was a good episode. Nickname. That was a good episode. Ministry in the marketplace. Yeah. So. Today we have a very special guest for this episode. Joining us again is author and speaker Abdu Murray. We are incredibly glad and humbled to have him back here. We're big supporters of Abdu here at Barnabas and Stream Roots and. And uh, you actually, a couple weeks ago, you spoke at our church and did just a fantastic, wonderful job of Thank you. sharing the gospel. Uh, if you don't know Abdu, he's the leader of Embrace the Truth Ministries. You can Google that and they have a YouTube as well. He's also the author of a few books with his next book coming out, More Than a White Man's Religion, Why the Gospel Has Never Been Merely White, Male-Centered, or Just Another Religion, coming out in September. Abdu, welcome back. Uh, it's great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. Um, th- I have a question for you before you have questions for me, okay? Sure. And did I hear right that your buddy calls you Pops? Yes. So my last name is Pospisil. Yeah. And in college, he uh, one of my nicknames was Pops. Okay. P-O-P-S. Okay. Okay. All right. Because no that... one, I think there's been like three people in the history of my life who ever pronounced my last name correctly the first time. <laughs> so, yeah, they probably Popsicle or, yep. yeah. I've never, I, you never heard that one before. Yeah, I'm sure you never have, yeah. Um, I, I, I will say that it's terribly ironic that uh, your church is on Hospital Road at Mark, Mark Pospisil, <laughs> Mark, Mark Hospital. I will get that wrong occasionally, I think. So anyway. That's good. That's how the Lord designed it to work. Yes, indeed. I yes, <laughs> said, so "God, give us a sign." Yeah. Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll I'll stop with the names. Sorry. <laughs> well, we're glad you're back, Abdu. Great to be here. Great to be here. How's everything going? Going very well. We're going very well. In fact, I just came back from a, my our own studio where we're recording episodes of our, my podcast, The Defense Rests, and a couple of other things as well. Uh, so uh, I have uh, talked already quite a bit today, um, but it's going very well. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for having me at the church, by the way. Um, still getting really good um, response to that. Um, talking about obviously some tough stuff uh, relative to the way the world is dealing with the Christian faith and how they see it. So. Um, getting some good feedback from there. Thanks again for having me, um, and uh, it's been wonderful. We're winding down my uh, my son's uh, high school education, mm-hmm. so it's the last week for him. And uh, man, I got to tell you, 
it's uh, it's great. It's great to see him launch. It's also uh, bittersweet, as mm. you can imagine, as you probably already know. Yeah. Yeah, I am looking forward to those days of mm. when my kids graduate and mm. and all of those things. And yeah. I love my children, and it's yeah. going to be great. And yeah. uh, sending yeah. them off into the world to be light and salt. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we again, we had a great time. It was uh, did a really, really good job with God's word and mm. handling some critical issues for our church. And people are like, can Abdul come back? Can I preached last <laughs> week, which was really hard to do because <laughs> they're used to <laughs> big shoes to fill, man. Yeah. yeah. Like you can bring back Abdul again. Soon. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they, they, they love when you preach. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's jump into our discussion here mm-hmm. uh, from read from God's word from first Peter chapter three, verse 14 to 16 it says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What an incredible scripture there, one that's pretty much key for many apologetics. But Peter tells us something that that uh, life will be hard. Things won't always go the way we want them to go. This was true back then when he wrote this, when the Lord inspired him to write it, and true today. We might suffer and we'll certainly face challenges to our faith in Jesus Christ. It seems that our world and culture is rapidly changing and plunging towards more and more ungodliness. Today, many people are not asking if the Bible is true, according to Abdul Murray, but if it is good. Yesterday's challenges to the Christian faith are old news. Peter also tells us to have no fear, nor to be troubled in our hearts. Instead, to honor Christ as first and foremost, and to be able to defend our hope in Jesus. We are not to avoid the toughest challenges, but to take them head on because of the hope of the resurrection. The church is supposed to be a pillar and buttress of truth, but we must remember that Jesus told us the gates of hell cannot stand against his church. So what are the toughest challenges the church of Jesus is facing today? How do we address them? How can the church effectively reach people with the gospel in our culture's ever-changing world? We're going to answer these questions and more on this episode of Stream Roots. Abdul, again, thanks for being back. Good to be here. What do you see as some of the toughest challenges to Christianity today? You know, it's interesting you asked that question because it was um, a different answer uh, maybe even five years ago or six years ago or so. Um, I would say even maybe seven because now we're in 2022 and um, things had a seismic shift um, in 2015 with the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court. Uh, where uh, same-sex marriage was legalized uh, in the United States, or more accurately uh, put, that it was uh, illegal or unconstitutional for states to limit marriage outside of uh, one man or two one man and one woman, uh, so essentially legalizing it. Uh, what you saw there was a shift, obviously, in a legal front, but you also saw on a cultural front there was a, a surge and a change that happened, not just as a result of Obergefell, but that was actually swelling for quite some time. And, and I think Obergefell just basically uncorked it, um, and it began to surge out. And then, of course, with um, uh, Caitlyn Jenner and the Vanity Fair cover that happened, all of a sudden uh, gay marriage or same-sex marriage wasn't even the issue du jour. Within a couple of years, it was no longer the big issue. It was gender. 
Um, and of course, all along that, you were you 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 saw sort of the smoldering embers underneath what looked like, you know, unignited uh, wood um, of the racial tensions that were going on in the in the United States and all around the world. In fact, and then with whether you're Tamir Rice or you know um, Michael Brown or anybody else. Um, these were going on, and they were, you know, sort of the embers of anger and the embers of the ideals of injustice were smoldering. And then, with George Floyd, they ignited even more so. They were already igniting, but really, they caught fire. So you had this confluence of things all along. What was going on? I think, culturally speaking, was this. I think a culture, a post-truth culture, which was seeking autonomy. Um, which is not freedom. It's not the same thing as freedom. Autonomy is a different thing than freedom altogether. Um, it doesn't encompass a fully orbed view of freedom. As that was happening, all these injustices were either being perceived or actually happening, and people wanted to respond to them. Um, and so you had this desire to give into preferences, whether it's on you know who I am, what I am, what I want to be, um, coupled with the reality of actual injustice. So if someone, and this is what I mean by this, let me unpack it just for a second. If someone has, in a post-truth culture, we are no longer given to the idea that truth does not exist. We believe that truth does exist. We simply don't care. It's just relegated now to the bottom shelf um, uh, or into the back uh, room. So we know it exists and we bring it out if it helps us. But if it doesn't help us, we kind of keep it in the back room um, because what matters more is our preferences and our feelings. A post-truth culture is a culture where preferences and feelings are more persuasive than facts and truth. So what does that mean then? That means that in a culture that is striving for autonomy, which is the ability to do whatever you want in whatever way you want. I mean, that word autonomy comes from two Greek word, roots, autos meaning self and nomos meaning law. So when you are autonomous, you're not free. You are a law unto yourself. You are the sovereign. The problem is everyone becomes the sovereign. And if preferences matter more than truth, then what I feel at that particular moment as the sovereign matters more than what the truth actually is. Here's the problem. What if what I feel as my own sovereign, as my own autonomous sovereignty, clashes with what you feel as your own autonomous sovereign? And truth is now in the back room. Truth then doesn't become the arbiter of who's right and who's wrong. What becomes the arbiter of who's right and who's wrong is power. Mm. And this is ironic because the post-truth mindset arose from the ashes of the postmodern mindset. And postmodernism said there's no such thing as truth because if there's truth, then people will try to foist that truth on you, which is a power game and a power struggle. So we'll try to get rid of this idea of truth, and that will get rid of power struggles, and then the people will no longer seek to impose and dominate power over everybody else. Well, the idea that there's no such thing as truth is itself self-defeating because that statement itself, that there is no such thing as truth, has to be true. And if it is true, then the statement itself is actually false, in which case you shouldn't have said it. So everyone knows that, and it's gone. Post, postmodernism is, is largely, at least philosophically, dead. But what rose from the ashes is post-truth. It's like, okay, fine, truth exists, but I don't care. Mm. And so I bring all this up because this sets the backdrop for why the challenges to the Christian faith have changed. And one of those challenges, as I see it right now, is in the light of the desire for our autonomy, I want to be 
whatever I want to be, regardless of the sort of constraints of biology, regardless of the strengths of society, whatever it might be, that is an emotional preference that's being, that's, that's seen as limited by or um, attacked by the Christian faith, which says there are boundaries. There are boundaries to reality and you don't get to pick. God gets to pick. Well, that is antithetical to the post-truth autonomous mindset. If I'm, the, if I'm the sovereign, then there can't be one over me. Well, the Bible says there's a God who's over you. Well, therefore, we have to reject it because he tells me that I can't be whatever I want to be. Um, that's the perception. So that, coupled with the, the things we see, whether it's you know, racial tensions and racial injustices or... Um, the Me Too movement, which exposed a lot of the, the ways in which women were, were, are not still to this day in the 21st century treated equally um, or not treated as human beings um, in various professions, whether it's in Hollywood or in an engineering firm, whatever it is, we see that also. And then what we're starting to see is that those two things, the opposition to my autonomy and the perpetuation of injustice is starting to be equated with Christianity. Mm. Probably because we've politicized so many things now and we've polarized so many things. Um, and so I think that's, that's, that's the big issue. The big issue is the challenge becomes, is Christianity bad for the world? Not as it's true or it's false. Uh, they're not asking that question primarily. They're asking primarily, is it bad for society? Is it bad for women? Is it bad for people of color? Is it bad for people who are transgender or uh, um, uh, homosexual, uh, any one of the LGBTQIAs or any, any of those? Is it bad for them too? So that's where the challenges are. The toughest challenges aren't questions like, was Lysanias really Tetrarch of Abila, as Luke says in the beginning of his gospel? Um, uh, it's, does the Bible condone racism? Does the Bible condone sexism? Does the Bible condone slavery? Does the Bible uh, have strictures on sexuality that are outdated, outmoded, and um, uh, sort of one of these ideas that was fine or even bad for the time it was, it, it was written, but now are so obviously bad that we need to reject it altogether. That's, the, that's, that's how the things have shifted. So eight years ago, I would have said the toughest challenges of the Christian faith are the problem of suffering, the origin of the universe, has science put God out of a job, um, uh, and these kinds of questions. Deeply, I think, apologetics questions that are either history, science, or theology or philosophy-based. Now they're more moral-based. So they become tougher, not in the sense of are they tougher to respond to uh, intellectually. They're tougher to respond to rhetorically mm. because you have to make a case now that if the Bible does have, for example, sexuality, restrictions on sexual expression, you can't just say the Bible says because the Bible's authority is now being challenged. You have to say why the Bible says it. And you have to do it in a way that's actually affirming not of what someone believes or thinks or behaves like, but of their value as a human being. And I think that is the toughest part of all this. How do you tell someone the Bible says X, Y, and Z, but also offer them why it says it in a way that affirms their value because they have value in virtue of God's existence. 
not in virtue of just blind evolutionary chance and these kind of things. So that's why the questions are tougher because they're so much more personal now. They're not intellectual. They're personal. But you know what's interesting about that? As I think about it, all the objections, the historical objections, the philosophical objections of the Christian faith, all the, those are all personal too. People don't come with questions solely in a vacuum, an academic back vacuum, they don't, or, or an academic back baggage. They don't just say, I'm curious, and that's it. They almost always come with their questions based on it having affected them. The answer affects people. And so in one sense, the questions, although they've shifted in their nature, away from fact, away from uh, philosophy and more into social issues and moral issues, the import is still the same. Which means that's, that's good news for us because that means that if we take the proper posture, you read from 1 Peter 3, 14 to the to, 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 to end of 15, that posture actually addresses these issues no matter what the shift is, no matter what the toughest objections are. So I hope that makes sense. It's a bit of a ramble. Uh, I realize that. But um, if the, the content of the questions have changed and the focus has changed from the truth to the morality – the intent behind the question has remained the same. Mm. It's how does this make sense of a God who claims to love me? Yeah. I, I don't think it's a ramble. I like when you ramble, by the way. <laughs> yeah. no, thank you. So we, we made the joke of just sitting here with our microphones off. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you it's wonderful. You were again, uh, you were just a side note when you spoke, you, you were like oh, over on time, but people were like, I wish he would have gone longer. See yeah. when I'm done, people are putting up like their hands, like time's over. Time to... <laughs> Except for the folks in the children's ministry. Like when is that guy going to stop talking? Yeah. yeah. So, no, that's my good. apologies to the children's ministry uh, over here at the league. Stop it. It was awesome. Um, but I think that you you hit it right on the nose. Um, I love, though Though the issues have changed, the in, the heart hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. You know, at some level, it's, you know, like Romans 1 says, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and then another level, right, it's, man, followers of Jesus or those who claim to follow Jesus. Like last time you used that great illustration of Zimmerman mm-hmm. and the guy, you know, like Yaakov, yep. Yaakov. And how can I believe when people who, who represent your Lord have done these things, they've done, done some bad things and, mm-hmm. and they've, they've not represented the Lord well uh, with gentleness and respect, or they just claim to be Christians and they weren't. Mm-hmm. And so I think you hit it right on the button, you know, the morality, the shifting, the change, you, you know, from the Supreme Court. But that's the it, that's a product of our culture. Yeah. It wasn't the Supreme Court. That's just the things that were changing in people's hearts. Yeah. And uh, and so I, I love that. That is so helpful. I was actually taking down many notes mm-hmm. as we were as so, you were yeah. talking. Well, you know, the, the, so the challenges as I see them, if I were to rank them. Um, in terms of the toughest challenges, and uh, this is important. It's not that they're the toughest challenges because the challenges are getting tougher. It's because of the primacy of them. Hmm. So if I were to say the priority, it's not that people are not asking questions like, does Luke get his history right or his geography right? They're asking those questions. They still are. Can it be that Jesus actually rose from the dead, or is this more of a fairy tale or a fable or a symbol? Was it ever intended to be taken as true? They're asking all those questions. I mean, I still get questions like, is there evidence of the Exodus? Um, uh, that kind of stuff. It's science and revolution and, 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 and you know, a Big Bang cosmology. Does this disprove God in some way? Those are still questions people are asking. They still are asking, and they're still tough. Questions of suffering. People are still asking me. In fact, I would even say they're more acute. They're actually just asked with different words. 
Um, but those aren't the primary questions they're asking. The priority is shifted in the sense that they'll get to that if they get to this first. And it is, I think, does the Bible condone the various injustices? Is the Bible the basis for all the injustices we see in the world right now, whether it's racial and ethnic tensions or sexism and, the, and you know, various things ending in phobia? Um, that's the, those are the primary questions. So they're not the, they're not the toughest questions so much as they're the primary questions. Yeah. So they, we can get to the other questions at some point if we address those first. Now, I, I say that with a caveat. Everyone is different. Every human being is different. And so sometimes those are not their primary questions. What I'm, what I'm saying is I'm finding more often than not that those are the primary questions or at least the biggest barriers. So they don't want to hear that, you know, Mark's gospel is a collection of eyewitness testimonies almost entirely based off of Peter's eyewitness testimony with some other ones thrown in. And so Mark possibly was the scribe of Peter who took down all the things that Peter said, which is why you have this and immediately, and immediately, and immediately language. Um, for that, by the way, I would look at Richard, Sp- Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, for an excellent defense of what I'm just saying. Um, they do want to know that, but they're not getting there yet. They want to know, does this book promote these terrible things? And if it does, then I don't really care if Luke gets his history right. That's kind of the, why they're, they're, they're tough challenges in the sense that they're the primary challenges, and we have not really sat down and thought them through. Apologetics is a rich history of responding to objections. In fact, I would say... Maybe I'm wrong about this and someone can correct me, and I'm happy to be corrected on this. I would say that 90% of the apologetics questions have either been answered um, with nuance and satisfaction to a lot of people, um, uh, some a little simplistically, but a lot with nuance and satisfaction. And so there's a 10% that's still out there that like, oh, you know, we don't know. We just don't know. Um, uh, having said that, you'd say, well, everyone's got their questions answered. No, because they, they keep bringing them up um, in different contexts and different fashions. So when you think about it, the biggest question is, has been, how can an all-good God, who's all-powerful, exist in a world where there's suffering? Because if he was all-good, he would want to end the suffering. If he was all-powerful, he'd be able to end the suffering, yet suffering exists. So either he's not all-good, or he's not all-powerful, or more likely, he just doesn't exist. That's a tough question. If you put that in the context of racial animus, and all the racial tensions that go on right now, and um, does the Bible condone these things, or sexism and all this stuff, you're just asking the suffering question, but in terms of justice. Mm. It's still moral. It's still justice. You're just asking it, how can a God who is all good condone these things? Um, And I think there's a great way that you can answer both the suffering question and the justice question from the same basis. So that's, I think, the trick is to answer them from the same basis. So I think we can do that. So I'll give you an example. As I was talking, and I'm writing about this in, uh, in my book, More Than a White Man's Religion. Um, uh, and every, every word in that title is important because it's more than a white religion, which has been cast as Persian. It's, it's been cast as this sort of religion of the white man that's been used to impose you know, uh, various privileges and powers on people of color and women. And it's more than a man's religion, which is, of course, the idea that it's not just a patriarchy. Uh, there's more to this than, than um, has been alleged. Uh, so I think you can do this, though, at a very, very 
important way where you get to the baseline, the basis of what these questions are about, whether it's the suffering question or the injustice questions. It all comes down to the objectivity of morality. Because if you're asking the question, how can a God let suffering happen? You're saying, objectively, letting suffering happen is bad. I don't mean like a bad idea. I mean it's morally bad. That assumes that moral badness exists objectively, which also then for, therefore assumes that moral goodness exists objectively. In other words, in, independent of human opinion. Because if there's only human beings, if there is no God above us, and as far as we can tell in the universe, we are so far the pinnacle of all creation. There is no being higher than us. We are the most moral beings. Apes and snakes and, and uh, you know, uh, kangaroos and the various mollusks, they don't have morality. They don't murder each other when they eat. They just eat. But if we kill another one of our species, we murder. There's a moral element to human beings. So here's, the, here's what I'm saying. If human beings are all there is, if we are the pinnacle of rationality and morality, that means that morality depends upon us. Mora- and if you look at human history, both ancient, relatively new, or even the news from this morning, you'll find out we are terrible at this. We shift our moralities based on what we ate for dinner that day, it seems almost. So we're terrible at this. We cannot be the seat of objective morality. In fact, if we are the subject of morality, then morality then therefore becomes subjective. In other words, it depends on human opinion. So if it depends on human opinion, morality, whether it's the rightness of evil or justice, if it depends on human, human opinion, then it is by definition subjective. If it is subjective, then it cannot be objectively wrong for God to allow suffering to exist because there is no such thing as objective reality or morality. So, but we believe in objective morality. We believe this. We believe it. So, so for example, um, slavery. It was legal in this country, in the United States, not too long ago to own people as property. It was legal in this country even more recently, to segregate people based on race. In terms of education, in terms of where they go to the bathroom, we would do that based on race. It was legal, which means that at least a number of people in certain pockets of of the country thought it was moral to do that. Was it wrong when it was legal to own people? Yes. Even though the majority of people thought it was okay, it was still wrong. It was still wrong, not be, be independent of human opinion. It was wrong. We fought a whole war over this. And we came to the right conclusion at some point that it's wrong to own people as slaves. That's not because we decided it was wrong. It was wrong even when we thought it was right. That's what I mean by objective morality. But if we were to take the issues of does the Bible condone racism or sexism, the first thing you have to ask is, what is the basis for your outrage at racism and sexism? What is the basis for that? Because if you don't have a basis for it, then it's basically just fashion. It's opinion at the moment. What is the objective basis to say that it is wrong for one subset of the human being, a human species, to treat another subset wrong or for their, for their own gain? What is the rational basis for this? And if you don't have one, then you're in a pickle. 
because you're obviously outraged. You know, I was talking to a young man about this. He was he he had walked away from his faith. African American young man. He had walked away from his faith um, because he basically bought into the idea that Christianity promotes racism and promotes slavery. And he used some biblical passages that seem to promote slavery for that purpose and and that kind of thing. And so we sat down and we had a lengthy chat. And the first thing I had to ask him was essentially, he's like, you know, I can sense there is a strong sense of justice in you. There's a strong sense of fairness. And you are rightly outraged when you see it being trampled upon, when you see fairness being trampled upon. And that's something good. We need that. Society needs people who see injustice and act upon it or speak up about it. We need that. Thank God that you're doing that. And I was sort of being facetious about it because he didn't believe in God. Uh, but um, I basically said, but here's my question for you. Where does this come from? If we're all just basically chemicals in motion, I mean, we are, uh, Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, said we're just a random collocation of atoms. If I'm a random collocation of atoms and you're a random collocation of atoms, what moral thing do you think attaches to me as a random collocation of atoms where I have to respect you as another random collocation of atoms? There's nothing that requires that I treat you with any kind of respect. If evolution is the paradigm by which human beings have come into existence, then at least it doesn't necessarily entail that Racism should be fine, but it gives an, a doorway. It gives an entryway because it basically says this. We are here as the pinnacle of creation because the strong dominate the weak. Whether it's with interspecies or between species, the strong dominate the weak. Darwin himself was worried about this. And there's many, many philosophers and philosophers of science who said Darwin's theory gave way to some horrible atrocities based on the idea. I mean, Nietzsche used it with the Ubermensch and all this, and that influenced Hitler and all these things, where the weak dominate are dominated by the strong because that's the way it should be. We don't get better unless the weak survive, sorry, unless the strong survive over the weak. That's how evolution happens. So I asked him, essentially, if you're saying that's how we got here, then wouldn't somebody be able to say, socially speaking, we'll get better if those of us who are allegedly, and I, I, it's obviously false, superior intellectually or superior physically dominate over those who are our intellectual or our physical inferiors. And if they dominate, they nominate. And that's just the way it is. And there's a struggle that ensues, and the one who should win wins. That seems to me to be evolutionary. And that just strikes me as wrong. And so we had this conversation because without God, there is no governing principle for that. It just exists as a brute fact. And so if in nature, the strong dominate the weak, and that's, that is how it works, and there's no overarching plan, no overarching morality by which the strong whether they're strong because they have power or privilege or whatever it is, if the strong are not constrained, if the powerful are not constrained by morality, they will run rampant over the weak. They will just do that unless there's a morality, an objective morality above our morality that tells us we ought not to do this. We need to have an obligation not only to each other, but I have an obligation to you, I said. I have an obligation to you 
as a fellow human being because you were not created by me. You were not given rights by me. You were not given value by me. You bear God's image, not my image. You bear his image, and because you bear his image, I have no right whatsoever to dominate you or to seek, to seek my advantage over yours. I have no right for that. And it only makes sense if God exists. So the objection itself actually leads to God's existence. doesn't disprove it. But it's tough because emotions are involved. So I think we can do that. I think we can actually use God's existence as the, as the anchor to show that these objections against the Christian faith actually fall apart. You can't even make the objection unless the very God you're objecting to exists. Mm. Love it. Well, my mind is blown. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I want to continue on our conversation mm-hmm. as we go in and dive in some more of these, this, this uh, imp- really, really important issue of dealing with the toughest issue, toughest things that are, that are facing the church today, facing Christianity. And uh, I'd love to invite you back for our next episode. Or is, would it be okay to do that? I'd be loved. I'd love to. I'd like, be honored to. I'll get you another spin drift. That sounds good. Okay. It's a deal. It's a deal. <laughs> yeah. Flavor of uh, pineapple flavored water. So mm-hmm. really appreciate your insight, your wisdom. I want to sign off here and I want to remind everybody that we're going to have a part two uh, for this for this episode uh, next week. And so uh, I just want to sign off here. Stream Roots is a production of Barnabas Ministries. You can learn more at barnabasministriesmi.org. That's barnabasministriesmi.org. We encourage you to subscribe or leave a rating for our Stream Roots podcast. We would be really grateful if you did. We release an episode every Monday morning, so you can find part two of our discussion here with uh, Abdu Murray uh, next week. Uh, Stream Roots, drawing deep from the living water of God's word.